Happy New Year. You're listening to Java with Julie, hosted by me, Julie Slattery. And let me just tell you, this podcast is listener-supported, and it's an outreach of a ministry called Authentic Intimacy, where we really help people make sense of God and sexuality. Well, what better time to talk about change, discipleship, and how we grow than the first day of the year? In today's episode, I'm joined by author Michael Hendricks, who currently serves as the director of Life Model Consulting at Life Model Works. Along with his mentor, Jim Wilder, Michael co-authored a book called The Other Half of the Church, where he explains the need for us to engage the right side of our brains in the discipleship journey. In our conversation today, we're going to talk about how just reading a book or listening to sermons is not going to be enough for you to continue to heal and grow in your relationship with Christ. Now, the concepts in this book have really helped me understand what has often been missing in my own discipleship journey, as well as informing how we continue to develop opportunities at this ministry, Authentic Intimacy. Maybe as we start this new year, you feel kind of stuck in disillusion with your spiritual growth or maturity, and you really want to start moving in the right direction. Well, this episode is going to challenge the way you think about healing, transformation, and spiritual formation. So go ahead and grab your Java and listen to my conversation with Michael Hendricks. Well, Michael, I am super excited to have you on Java with Julie to talk about the book that you co-authored called The Other Half of Church. And I have to say that I think this is probably one of the most profound books that I've read in the last year. And I read a lot of books. And uh, not only is it profound, but it's easy to read. So the things that we're going to be talking about and that you've written in this book are so critical, but I, I thank you for putting the cookies on the lower shelf, so to speak, so that <laughs> we can actually understand these concepts about how our brain works and how that leads to spiritual growth. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Julie. Well, let's start at the beginning. The whole title of the book, This Other Half of the Church, kind of sets up this premise that the way we do church, or I would even say the way we tend to go about our Christian life, is not accessing the fullness of how God wants us to grow. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that conclusion and what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, often when you have an author on, they write their book from an, an, a background of being an expert in some area, and I want to share my expertise with all the everybody else so that they can be experts themselves. And that is not this book. This book was really written from a place of confusion and frustration as a pastor of discipleship, where I would help the people in our very large church um, to kind of grow. We had a lot of very young Christians help them grow in maturity. And it just seemed like it would work sometimes The you know, kind of the traditional Christian ways we help people grow would work really well, honestly, sometimes and other times it wouldn't work at all. Mm. Or for or more specifically for some kinds of problems the, the typical Christians is really help. They, they really help a lot, but there's a whole nother category of big problems in life and stuff people run into that they don't, it seems to be inadequate. It needs more. It's not that it doesn't help at all. It's just there's we're missing yeah. something. That's why we titled this mm-hmm. the other half. Okay. So first of all, what would be some of those problems or situations that our typical approach to growth doesn't help? Yeah. So I did a five-week training at our church on spiritual disciplines, like of quiet solitude, scripture mem- memorization and meditation, things like that. And uh, 
that's where I would see, you know, I had people come to me after that saying, Hey, I think this training saved my marriage. One guy told me it wasn't really written to save mm -hmm. a marriage, but that mm -hmm. was great. Another woman said, Michael, I had no idea churches did this kind of thing. Thank you so much. And I had people come up and say, this just, I just didn't, couldn't get traction with this. It didn't speak to me. I couldn't concentrate, you know, things like that. And so that's when I started thinking, you know, I, you know, I got to the point as a pastor, I'd be sitting in my office at church, staring at the wall at the dry erase board in the wall and just almost asking God for a picture and basically having to say, God, I don't think I know how to do my mm -hmm. job because I don't think I fully understand how people yeah. grow. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you're describing that, people come to Christ and often you have an initial excitement about new life in Christ. And then the rest of your life is supposed to be this trajectory of growth, of growth right. and intimacy with him, a transformed character, seeing God work in places like our marriages, our, the strongholds that are in our life, our wounds, like we're supposed to be going from strength to strength. But what you're describing is that often people just feel stuck and they're doing all the things that church is telling them to do and they don't see any progress. Would that be a good summary? Yeah. And when you're in that state, I've been there myself and I saw a lot of people that you know I was a pastor with and helped train. And you either come to the conclusion, well, something's wrong with me. I'm just like a hopelessly broken person or something's wrong with my church. They're just not doing it right. Or, you know, maybe it's just like, maybe this is just what the Christian life is. And we settle. Yeah. This is just, you know, some nice sermons, some you know, emotional experience on the weekend and then kind of the usual problems. Just yeah. It, or I would even add an additional one where you start to question the power of God. Like maybe right. this Christianity thing isn't real because I don't see mm -hmm. the evidence of it in my life, which, right. which is right. a, a really scary conclusion to draw. Mm -hmm. So Mike, when we talk about the traditional ways that the church goes about growth, what do you mean by that? And how is it just accessing part of what it takes to grow? Yeah. You know, when I first met um, the man who's kind of my mentor, Dr. Jim Wilder, you know, I met him in the state where I was in this confusion and I asked him kind of a similar thing. Like I, I said, why do I, you know, the typical Christian things we think of as Bible study, meditation, memorization of scripture, uh, silence and solitude, going to church, listening to sermons, being in a small group, praying. And, uh, and so why do I keep bumping into this word sometimes where it sometimes works and for some people and for some problems and other kinds of problems, it seems like it doesn't work. Or sometimes it does work on the same problem and sometimes other times it doesn't. And he's the one who said, you know, Michael, I think it would, it would help you if you understood a little bit about how God designed the human brain to mature us and to grow our character. And that's when he bent over and pull it out of his bag, a plastic brain. He had a plastic brain. And he unhooked the two sides, the left and the right side, and started explaining how the brain works. And he basically said, we, we really don't have a brain. We really have two brains that closely work together, the left brain and the right brain. They're focused on different tasks in general. The right brain is the more powerful brain. It's a faster processor, and it's largely nonverbal, and it focuses on uh, our social, relational, emotional surroundings. And then our left brain is kind of what we often think in culture is the brain, which is our thinking, coming up with strategies, you know, believing the right things, uh, willpower, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then so Jim explained the two sides in more, in more detail. And then he said, 
Part of the problem we run into is that for the last three to 500 years, we put most of our Christian discipleship into the left side of our brain. And we've largely ignored the right side, which is the relational side. And so one way I I like to say it is that, you know, one of the the, the central command and, and goal of any kind of discipleship is to create people who love like Jesus loved. And that task is primarily a right brain task of training. Not completely. There's some ref, left brain ca- tasks, but it's primarily a right brain t- task. And, and it's stuff, you know, we, we tell people to love like Jesus loves. We tell people to do the hardest commandment he gave us, which is to love our enemies. But we never train people how. Mm-hmm. I just, it's like, you know, it's like going to my eight-year-old daughter and saying, hey, you need to go down and out and fix the transmission in my truck. Here's some tools. Mm-hmm. Don't come back until it's fixed. Yeah. But I never teach her how, mm-hmm. right? And we're essentially doing that in churches all yeah. the time. Boy, that is so true. And when I even look at our ministry here at Authentic Intimacy, we kind of fall in line with a lot of that in terms of content. Like people just mm-hmm. need more teaching. They need more studies. They need their thinking challenged. And certainly that is part of discipleship. We are told to renew our minds. But what you're saying is that is important, but it's not the whole picture. And, uh, you know, I've even talked to people who have been able to walk away from addictions like pornography, or they've been able to forgive something that is, uh, seems impossible to forgive. And the, the reason they're able to do that is not because of what they've learned, but because of a, a greater love that you're describing, like a mm-hmm. change in affections and a change in priorities. And I can see how in our Western culture, like we're totally missing how we disciple people in that right brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your book is about how do we make that shift? Like what does it actually mm-hmm. look like to do right brain discipleship and why is that so pivotal to change? Uh, and you break it down primarily into into three things. You add you add some nuance to it, but it's three things that you and Jim have identified as these are the things that really change us and that form our right yeah. brain. So I'd love to take our time just unpacking those three things. So what's the first one? Yeah, actually, and actually, it's actually four things. It's like four ingredients. We use the analogy of mm-hmm. soil. Like soil is meant to grow okay. stuff. But if soil becomes depleted, it doesn't grow what it's what it's supposed to grow. A lot of times it'll grow weeds really well, but not mm-hmm. tomatoes, for yeah. example. And so it's the case of adding to the soil. And the soil is a relational community soil. We change our character changes by our community. Mm. That's another almost that's almost anti-American to yeah, say that. It is. Right. We're so individualistic. And what what's my list of five things I need to do? But character largely, the part of our brain that, that grows our character is looking more than any other thing. It's looking to who are my people and what what is it like me to act in this situation from who my people mm-hmm. are. Not who I am, who my people yeah. are. Group identity. Yeah. That's one of the ingredients. But the first ingredient is ingredient, you know, Jim Wilder explained it to me when he, you know, explained some of the brain stuff. I said, Well, what's an example of some like a Christian practice that maybe we don't think is hard, important for discipleship, but that when you study how God designed the brain, it's like, ooh, this has to be part of it too. Mm-hmm. And Jim said, Michael, the brain was designed to look for one thing before anything else. From the very earliest time, right from birth and on, it's looking looking for this thing called joy. Now, uh, scientists used to think, neuroscientists used to think the brain was really organized around fear 
And so the brain was just trying to keep us away and safe from scary things. And it's true, there's circuitry to that, but it's, it's actually higher in the brain. It's not more down fundamental. It was actually Dr. Alan Shore that said, no, the brain is not organized primarily around fear. It's organized by joy. And he defined joy as what I feel when I can tell from the sparkle in your eyes that you are happy to be mm. with me. And so joy is what I get when your face lights up, when we see each other, when I walk into the coffee shop and we see each other. It's the feeling that I can tell without any words are necessary. I can tell that I'm special to you, that there's grace between us and that uh, you're interested in me. Wow. From a, a neuroscience perspective, is that where, for example, we get a lot of dopamine released when we feel that joy or is that accurate? Yeah, there are definitely hormones backing mm -hmm. all of this stuff up. There's hormones backing the fear part of yep. it as well, right? So there's there's this whole signature of God in the way our brain releases hormones that's doing this kind of stuff. Even some of the quieting exercise we do is designed to drain cortisol out of your blood, which is the stress hormone, and to replace it with serotonin, which makes you feel kind of mm -hmm. peaceful, Yeah. right? And so all of these things are backed up. And, and we read in the Bible about how important it is, yeah. you know, to be still before God, to rest in Him. Mm. And so there's this whole hormonal system or, you know, when our face lights up with someone that, you know, it's all backed up by the way God designed it. It's designed into our yeah. flesh. This concept of joy is the one that challenged me the most personally when I read it. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I can identify in relationships when I feel that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yes, like I want, I want to be that way with other people. I want to be that way with my kids. I want to be with that way with my husband, my community. But you wrote about how God is that way with us. And mm -hmm. you looked into some scripture that basically was saying that God's face lights up when we seek him, when we're with him. And that's a hard concept for me. And I don't know if that's mm -hmm. true with most people, but probably one of the biggest challenges I've had in my Christian walk is really believing that that I can make God smile, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know why that is. I can read about it, but just to have that sense of peace that God is actually joyful um, with me. Mm -hmm. Is that a common struggle? Yeah, we see that a lot, you know, and it's, it has some pretty deep roots in our past. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful thing about it is the area in the brain that really is kind of like our joy center. It's our joy and identity center. It's called the prefrontal cortex on the right side of our brain. There's a prefrontal cortex on the left too, but this is the right prefrontal cortex. And uh, it's the one area of the brain that's constantly growing. Mm -hmm. Like one person says, it's, it's constantly producing kind of fetal biomass till the day we die. So it can always train. So no matter what our past or experience of joy was in our infancy and in our childhood and our teens and up, we can always, always start building joy. And in a sense, it functions like a gas tank. We can start filling up our joy tank through some good exercises. So, you know, now I work a lot. I, I consult with churches and missions organizations and Christian groups and other things around, you know, this character transformation and how we mature. And everywhere I go, the first thing, the first practices I and content that I go into is the importance of joy in the neuroscience of it and the importance of joy, how much we see it all over the Bible and really good practices. And, you know, a lot of them I, I'll meet online twice a month for an hour, hour and a half. And I'll say, okay, until this next, until for the next two weeks, do these two joy building exercises every single day and then come back and let's have, unpack it mm -hmm. together. Okay. So it's a lot of practice. Our brain really, 
it responds, especially the right brain responds to two big things. It, it responds to healthy, healthy repetition, mm -hmm. you know, good right brain practices. And number two, it responds to being bonded to people who are further down the road than we are. Mm -hmm. So our brains are always looking to, for a more mature, better developed relational brain. So a, a person who, you know, I need men and women who can handle levels of stress and complicated situations and stay compassionate and kind and humble, gentle, where I would have just lost it or argued or shut down. Those are the people, I, you know, if I see them handle things in a way I can't, my brain actually starts repatterning itself. Boy, that's them. encouraging. So yeah. you said that this concept of joy is all over the scripture. Yeah, I think we tend to find what we're looking for. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I think a lot of times we can read the scripture and see evidence of God's disappointment or his anger towards people uh, or the things we don't understand about him. So where do we see in scripture and where can we begin to look and see God's faith shining towards us. Well, one of the classic Old Testament scriptures, it's, you know, it's one of the only times God gives a blessing and a prayer to Moses and Aaron to pray over the mm. people. You know, usually we think of us talking to God, we're coming, but he, he told them to say this in number six, and then may the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. And that his face shining upon you is that's the neurological definition of joy that Dr. Alan Shore discovered like 20 something years ago. But he just discovered what God, how God wired us up. You know, God knew it all along. It's all over scripture. If you read the Psalms and every time you start seeing, you know, the, the face of God or even the presence of God, a lot of times when you see the, the term in the Psalms, you know, may he comfort you with his presence and you look it up in the Hebrew that's not, doesn't say presence, it says his mm -hmm. face. Hmm. So may his face comfort you, which means his face is tender. It's delightful. You know, Zephaniah 3 is a good verse, you know, that has a good, I think it's 313. I can't remember the, which verse it is in Zephaniah 3, where it says the Lord takes great delight in you. He uh, calms you with his love and he rejoices over you with singing. Mm, yeah. You know, it reminds me when our kids were small, you know, when we put them to bed like at eight o'clock at night, my wife and I'd have time alone to do whatever. But before I go to bed, I'd tiptoe in their rooms and then look in their beds or their crib and look at them and my face would just be glowing on them. Even if they were asleep, I would just like, these are so precious. Mm -hmm. And to think that God has that same kind of just almost ache in his heart of delight when he yeah. sees us. Uh, thanks for sharing some of those Old Testament passages. Where do we see that in the New Testament? Yeah, we see it all over. My favorite story, I think the key one of the key ones is the story of Zacchaeus, mm -hmm. right? He shows up, he hears this famous guy, Jesus is coming to town. So he shows up, he kind of just wants to see the this famous person, right? And he gets there. Of course, he is a, like a traitor to the nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he, he basically turned his back and started collecting money for the enemy, mm -hmm. right? And it was took an extra share himself. So he's not only a traitor, he was a thief. So he shows up, the streets are lined and nobody will even like, nut. he's a short man. They could have just nudged over and he could have come in front and watched just fine. But it's like, nobody, I'm not letting that guy through, right? He just took half of my paycheck. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're not going to make, we're going to have to have a couple at the end of the month, no meals because of this guy. So nobody let him in. And so he runs and finds a tree, runs up to the tree. And he, I think he's just expecting Jesus to pass by, but Jesus gets to the tree and looks up at him. And it says he looks at him and before, even before he looks at him, you think, what was the look on Jesus's face? And, uh, and what, and then what do you think he was going to say to him? 
And I think the average person on the lining the street are thinking, you know, Jesus is going to say, Zacchaeus, you traitor, you're a traitor to your own people. You're harming people. You're robbing people. You thief, shame on you mm -hmm. or something like that. Repent. But instead, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I want to go eat dinner at your house tonight. Mm -hmm. And that encounter with the face of Jesus, literally Zacchaeus was not another person. Interesting, Jesus did not give him a sermon in that moment. He didn't say, he didn't give him a list of things he'd done wrong and things he needs to do instead. He just said, I want to come to your house and have dinner with you. And Zacchaeus was never the same person mm -hmm. again. Yeah. That's the power mm -hmm. of joy. Yeah. And seeing the face of God and his joy in us. Um, right. Zacchaeus, I am happy to be with yeah. you right now. Michael, what are the two practices that you give people for homework, like to reinforce that practice of experiencing joy? Yeah, great question. One practice we do is um, to think of a memory where something you're really grateful for, that memory, and that you felt kind of a connection to Jesus in some way. Mm -hmm. And then uh, give it a short title. I have one that's like red-tailed hawk or another. I have another one called balloon soccer. Doesn't matter what the title is and start making a list of these memories. And then and go back and instead of thanking God for them verbally, which is kind of more left brain, go back and relive the memory. Close your eyes, relive the memory, go back into it and sit in it for like 30 seconds or whatever until your mind wanders. Mm -hmm. And, and just enjoy, what do you feel in your body when you relive it? And what, what's your connection with Jesus mm -hmm. like? Like, what do you, how do you sense him in that memory and his pleasure? Mm -hmm. And then come up with a list so that you can maintain, you know, five minutes of uninterrupted gratitude, right brain yeah. gratitude. Using three or four, you know, memories from your list or however you need. Mm -hmm. And it puts your brain into such a healthy mm -hmm. place by mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. Now, you have to kind of work into three minutes, five minutes. Usually, you have to start with one minute or two minute, work up to three, because we're not. there's nothing in our culture that teaches us to turn our, our thoughts and words off and just relive a memory and enjoy Jesus's presence in that mm -hmm. memory. That's a brand yeah. new skill for us. So usually, it takes people a month before they can even consistently reach five mm -hmm. minutes. I'll bet. Right? Yeah. When you describe those, um, I had mentioned to you before we started that I've read some of the books um, that Jim Wilder has written. And I remember that this one that I read, and I can't remember the title of it, but he was talking about the importance of returning to joy. And particularly yep. for people who are working through trauma, whether it be sexual trauma or trauma from the past, that a big part of their healing is being able to return to a place of joy and yep. to know Very the joy important. of God. All of us are healing from something, but I've seen yep. that in people's lives, how powerful it is just that message of, I need to return to joy on a regular basis. Uh, and then mm -hmm. beginning to create communities that reinforce that instead of, you know, to be honest, the vast majority of our interactions with people are not joyful. They feel performance-based, you feel insecure. And so to begin building church and family cultures where it's normal to express joy to one another and have our faces shine in each other, that's a game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's important to distinguish that joy is not mm, happiness. Yeah. And so when, you know, you're talking about healing from uh, addictions and trauma, there's a lot of pain always below mm -hmm. that, yeah. right? And so joy doesn't mean you have to paste this plastic 
you know, fake Christian smile on your face. It means that your people are happy to be with you, even in this really dark thing that happened mm-hmm. to you. That's yeah. joy. Joy can be mixed with any of the emotions. So when we talk about return to joy, it's really returning from one of the big negative feeling emotions that we get stuck in. And all of a sudden we can't imagine joy. We can't imagine someone's happy to be with me right mm-hmm. now. And return to joy means, yeah, I have a community that wants to be happy with me when I'm ashamed, when I did something I'm ashamed of, or, I'm, or, or they want to be with me when I'm, when I'm losing my, my, my head and I'm angry and I want to get mad mm-hmm. at people. They're still happy to yeah. be with me when I'm sad. You know, sad is the easiest one. We tend to want to go to people when they're sad. So sad, sadness is the first return to joy skill we teach, and then we move on to the more difficult mm-hmm. emotions. But that can be trained. The what good news is you can actually train your brain to return to joy from big, big negative feeling mm-hmm. emotions. And in your book, you give some of those exercises that are uh, appropriate for both individuals and groups to start incorporating this. Um, yeah. Yep. yep. All right. Well, the second main ingredient of the soil has said, which is yes. a Hebrew word. So explain what that means. Yeah. Hesed is the Hebrew word that's usually translated love, but it's a very, it's a bigger word than love. Love's also a word that we've overused in mm-hmm. English, but it's really like an unfailing covenant love that functions like an attachment, like a family level attachment. It's permanent for life and that we are, we can, our brains consider us mm-hmm. family, whether we're blood yeah. or not. Right. But it's also, uh, you know, because some permanent attachments aren't life-giving. It's also very life-giving, concern for each other's well-being and uh, seeing each other through the eyes mm-hmm. of Jesus. And I know this word is all over the Old Testament. In my, in my oh, yeah. the translation I read, it's usually, I think, translated as like steadfast love or steadfast faithfulness. Yep, that's uh-huh. another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you have to use many words to try to, you know, get the meaning of this. And Paul actually essentially redefine the word agape. Mm-hmm. Agape in his age was not a very used word. We used a lot as Christians, this because of the Bible, but he actually took the word agape in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and redefined it to look like a hesed to a Greek speaking audience. So, so agape really is kind of the, the Greek overlay of the word Hebrew word mm-hmm. hesed. Okay. And he uses, you know, all the things he says about it is very much, it's a permanent, it's a family level yeah. bond. The way we grow hesed, you know, the first way, First essential uh, ingredient of he- that, that builds hesed is on the, honestly joy. As we build joy with other people, our bonding to each other grows. Mm-hmm. But there's other things as well, like um, eating meals together regularly, uh, sharing our weaknesses. Mm. So we don't just, it's a relationship that I can just, I can share my successes, but I can and also say, you know, Julie, I blew it yesterday in this meeting at work. I don't know. Can I share this mm-hmm. with you? Man, I did not act like yeah. myself. And if I feel open and like I'm free to share that with you and know that you'll still have kindness, you receive it with kindness and humility, that means our hesed is growing. If I have to feel like I have to perform for you and I can only share certain things, that means our hesed is just getting started or it's absent mm-hmm. altogether. And I could see why joy then is so important because once you establish yep. that joy, it's like, okay, I feel safe enough to be vulnerable and trust that I can share who I really am. And this is where I think... You know, the the traditional Western church communities have really broken down because we're so transient and use the word family. So we have mm-hmm. our families, which some families struggle with, Hesed, but I feel like right. it's hard to find a church family where there's a sense mm-hmm. of 
commitment of I'm not going anywhere. Like I'm not just here because it's convenient. So how do you begin building that outside of your nuclear family when we have a church culture that isn't really used to being built on that? Yeah, a lot of times there is very low hesed in churches, and that's by design. Mm. Because once we start bonding together and building joy together, our brains actually start healing, they start getting stronger, and then all of a sudden, all sorts of trauma is being released. Because our brain basically, God designed it like when it gets strong enough, it will release trauma. It may be memories you don't didn't remember, or a lot of times it's memories you remember, but you just you know that I'm I'm, I've moved on from that. It's that didn't Mm -hmm. really affect me. And then as you as you do some gratitude and start building in, in stronger Hesed community, all of a sudden you, you see it with new eyes and realize, wow, I was deeply hurt by that. I think I need mm. some healing. A lot of churches don't want that to happen because that's scary. It's messy. Yeah. You know, can't you just come to church and not be a problem and listen to our performance from stage and go home and, you know, not cause yeah. problems. And even right? small group communities like. Small yeah. groups blow up mm-hmm. when this happens mm-hmm. sometimes. That's why the second two ingredients, the second two of the four are so important. You know, the joy and the hesed are like fertilizer. You know, you throw fertilizer on a garden, everything grows, Mm -hmm. right? The problem with that is you're going to grow some corn and peas and tomatoes. That's wonderful. You can also grow a bunch of Mm -hmm. weeds because they all respond to Mm -hmm. hesed. And so the second two ingredients are are less like fertilizer and more like, are we growing the correct yeah. things? Okay. And I want to get to those other two because they are really important, but let's drill a little bit into Hesed. Like what does it yes. look like practically to build that in our communities? So Hesed communities, let's take a small group. That's the easiest place to start it. Are there communities where we have regular practices of gratitude, sharing gratitude from our lives being grateful to each mm-hmm. other on a regular basis. It's when, you know, when people are showing up to group, you people let their faces light up on them for a few mm-hmm. seconds. All it takes is a few seconds. You don't actually don't want to do it more than about two or three seconds or then it's kind of awkward and joy goes the yeah. other direction, right? But letting your face shine when they show up, it's really easy. If we haven't been educated in this, it's easy to think, well, that's not important. What's that? But once you see how God designed the brain, our brains are looking for faces that are lighting mm-hmm. up on us. That's the first six times a second my brain is sampling my, even mm-hmm. right now, sampling our environments, looking, are there faces? Are there people that are happy mm-hmm. to be with me? Are they not happy yeah. to be with me? Or do they, are they indifferent mm-hmm. to me? We know that almost feels like a t- to us almost instantly, mm-hmm. we can tell. And then groups have to be a place where, we actually train each other to share and to receive weak, each other's weakness. Mm. So we have to practice sharing our weakness, but we also have to, have to practice receiving it in a way that maintains the joy. Otherwise, it'll be a joy killer if I start giving, you know, you share a problem and I start wanting to give you advice. Yeah. Or, you know, there's all sorts of wrong ways we can receive another person's weakness. And there are a lot of really good ways to receive it. And we need to be trained mm-hmm. in that. That's some of the training I do when I do the mm-hmm. consulting. So what would be an example of a good way to receive weakness? The number one thing the brain looks for after someone shares, when someone, when I'm sharing weakness, what my brain is looking for then from your face is what we call attunement mm-hmm. or validation, where you get my emotions and you realize, you basically, oh, Ma- Michael, that's, you know, that sounds really hopeless to me too. I, I could see your, how hopeless mm-hmm. this is. And so you verbalize that, but you said the brain is also looking for changes in your face and, and what your body language is saying. 
And as you're verbalizing it, it's looking to your face. If your face is not reflecting the words coming out of your mouth, my whole brain will dismiss your yeah. words. Like if, if I say to you, oh, Jilly, I'm so sad that happened to you. <laughs> and my face is like dead. I, there's no... Versus I say, oh, Julie, that sounds really mm. hard. That's sad. Yeah. So actually my nonverbals are 10 times more important than mm -hmm. the verbal. But we want both and both have to rhyme together to be on the same track. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we will always follow what's coming out of someone's face instead yeah. of their and words. And boy, this is so key because again, I think in Christian circles, we're trained to give somebody advice or a Bible verse instead of just sitting with them and attuning to where they are with what they've just shared. Yeah, there's all that's what those are two of the main ways we say is the wrong thing to do when someone comes to some big emotions is to try to fix them, give them a Bible verse. Another one is we we don't minimize. A lot of times it's like, Julie, don't mm -hmm. be so sad. You'll yeah. get better. Well, both of those things are not true. This is really sad. You should be sad. And I don't know if it's going to get better because I'm not mm -hmm. God. So and plus it doesn't help your yeah. brain. Your brain is looking for, does Michael get me? And is he with mm -hmm. me in this? Yeah. And I can actually, I can validate your emotions with mm -hmm. no words. I can just go, you know, you, I can, my face can do it all. And we don't, we even practice validating first with words and some hypothetical situations I create, mm -hmm. you know, in our consulting. Then I say, okay, I give my hypothetical and I say, okay, now validate this person with no words. Wow. And so we can, you can practice that and it actually works. You get better yeah. at it over time. Boy, um, I'd like that. I'd like to go through your training sometime and learn all that. Yeah. Let me bring up yeah. an issue with, as said, communities. The reality is that we don't always stay together for a lifetime. Sometimes circumstances tear us apart where I'm moving here or we're working together and now we're not working together or there's a dispute. You know, we even see that in the scripture with Paul and Barnabas. They had a sharp disagreement. They went separate ways. And I think it's hard for people to build said or to start trusting community when their experience has been, this isn't going to last forever. And I don't know how long it's going to last. So I guess yep. one question is, how do we end well? Like when we have those small groups or we have friendships or we have a ministry team where there is change. How do we end well without, in some ways, re-traumatizing that trust? Right. That's a great question. I think a lot of the reason why small groups avoid the has said the family level is because of this. Because when you when you sign up for growing a deep has said group, you're signing up for mm. pain. It's pain you wouldn't feel otherwise. Yeah. People will leave. It's all over the you know in the old in the New Testament after the church you know was together every day and met in the squares. Then they were persecuted and they scattered, mm -hmm. you know? So life will take us places. God will take us apart sometimes because he wants you to go do this thing over mm -hmm. here, this exciting thing in, in Bend, Oregon or whatever, right? Far away. So the key thing is that we suffer together when someone leaves. We cry. Mm -hmm. We express how much we'll miss you. We actually make it a big deal that you're leaving and we let you know how much we are going mm -hmm. to miss you. Yeah. We don't pretend, we don't minimize the pain. We don't pretend that it's nothing. We actually do this, the opposite. You know, look at, you look at Paul, when Paul visited the Ephesians church on the way back to Jerusalem, and he said, this is the last time we're going to see each other. It said they wept uncontrollably. And they said the thing that made them the saddest is when he said they're not going to see mm. each other again. So they wept and hugged each other and cried together. And then Paul left and they never saw mm -hmm. him again. That is a beautiful example mm -hmm. of hesed. 
That is pain that is good pain. That's good. That's heaven yeah. pain. There's some pain God wants us to feel. There's some pain he'll, he wants to heal. He doesn't want to heal that pain. He wants us to feel that pain because he mm -hmm. feels that pain. And so it's important not to shortcut those losses or minimize them. Yep. Let ourselves mourn. We're not a mourning culture. Let our, give ourselves time. I can tell you how many people like when someone dies and, you know, like if someone's, I remember one, one of my, my son's friends, his, his, uh, his dad's wife died and he, and it, it was like a, half a year later and he said, you know, he really needs to get over this. I think he's mm, stuck in this. Half a year later. And I'm no. like, oh, half a year later, they lived their whole lives together. Yeah. Let him, as a matter of fact, you should affirm his mm -hmm. mourning. You should be going in and say, this is so sad. I'm, I would just want to sit mm -hmm. with you. Yeah. I'm sad too. I mean, we need to let the sadness come, but oftentimes you don't want to do it. If you don't have good return to joy skills, this is how this, all the peaceful come together. If you don't have good return to joy skills and sadness, then sadness will become scary right. to you. Because you don't know how to get out of it. You don't know how to stay mm -hmm. relational in it and connected, mm -hmm. relationally connected mm -hmm. in it. But when you have, when you start growing the capacity, then you can go into sadness and at the same time remain joyful because we're happy to be together as we mm -hmm. cry. Yeah. And as you say that, I can see the mixture of those in some of Paul's letters, both the joy mm -hmm. and the, the grief or sadness. All right, so you've already given us a little preview of the third ingredient, which is group identity. Talk about yes. why that's so important. So group identity is telling us, it's basically the definition of it is, is it's the answering the question, what, who are my people and what do we do in these? What is it like me to be and act like who we are in this situation? Mm -hmm. So in any situation you're in in life, your brain is trying to pull from your people now, my people, you know, that quote, my people are the people that have, that my brain recognizes as we're at a, a Hesed yeah. level. So that's not right. everybody, but it's some people. And what do my people do in this situation and how mm -hmm. do we act? Boy, as you say that, Michael, like the first thing that comes to mind is families and how mm -hmm. difficult it is to unlearn the things we learned growing up for better or for worse. You know, like we just yep. naturally do what our people do because yep. we were trained that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why the importance of a Hesed community in our churches is that it's our group identity is founded on seeing each other through the eyes of Jesus, seeing all of life through the eyes of Jesus. So our group identity gets bound to the kingdom of heaven that he is building on earth. Some of us inherited a very strong group identity, but it's a corrupted group yeah. identity. Like you are only, Julie, you are only worth what you produce, mm -hmm. right? Something mm -hmm. like that. And, uh, or you know, things like that. And so a lot of our, our work around group identities, we have to deprogram the bad group identity and, and then program the good identity because group identity will form your character for good yeah. or for bad. And boy, I would say that all of us have learned at some level dysfunctional group identity because we're learning from human beings instead of learning from God to start with. But right. I, when we talk about this group identity, you've already mentioned that we're such an individualized culture that we don't like to think that way. We don't like to think, what will my group do? We like to think, what do I want to do? Or what do I feel like doing? And that's a very American way of approaching mm -hmm. this. What is the danger in, in kind of shirking that call to group identity? You'll have no character change mm -hmm. at all. Because the brain is looking to our community. It's not looking to my individual identity in that way. Individual identity, by the way, is very important, but for other things. Our group identity, you know, our brain is, it's a very, character is very, a very we mm -hmm. issue. 
not an I issue. What do we do? That's what our brain is looking to is who who are my people and how do we act in this situation? Mm -hmm. Our character is not improved by what we believe is true, even though what we believe is true is very important, Mm -hmm. right? If we believe things that are false, that's going to have really bad consequences in our life. But our brain is looking to who are my people and what is it like us to act Mm -hmm. in this situation? You know, like is uh, you think of Paul, you know, when Paul writes, I think to the Colossians in chapter three, he says, since we've been loved by God so much, we're chosen and we're deeply loved by him, clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Mm-hmm. So that that's a really good group identity yeah. statement. You know, fundamentally, as we clothe ourselves in Christ, we are a people who first and foremost clothe ourselves in every situation we're in, we close ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. When we lose those five words, every one of those five words is deeply relational. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't exist outside of a relationship. It's not primarily behavioral mm-hmm. talking yeah. about. When we stop being compassionate, we've stopped acting like a true Christian. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so we need to start acting like a Christian yeah. again. Yeah. I think particularly post-COVID, there are a lot of people who have concluded, just me and Jesus, like we're good. Like I can right. do church with my with my phone and find a great worship and that you're saying the opposite. Like it's impossible for you to grow in the character of Christ on your own. You need these kinds of communities that are bringing these ingredients. Yeah. The, the brain science says that. And I think Jesus himself would disagree with the Mm -hmm. statement that it's just Jesus and me and Jesus would probably tell them, no, you need to go, Mm -hmm. go be with these people. Although sometimes life is weird. Sometimes you and Jesus are all yeah. that there is. Yeah. You, you know, if you're a, a Christian in a closed country and you get thrown in jail mm-hmm. in isolation, it's yeah. you and Jesus. And so it, you know, life is big and complicated. There are times we do pass through times of where that happens, but in general, Jesus more often than not, in my experience says, I've even haven't said, why are you talking to me? You need to talk mm-hmm. to your people. I prepared them mm-hmm. for you. Go talk mm. to them. So you describe these three ingredients of soil, joy, has said, mm-hmm. and group identity. And, and you mentioned there's a fourth ingredient that really has to do with pulling out weeds. So yep. can we touch on that briefly before we, we close this out? Yeah, the fourth ingredient is healthy correction. This is the one that's easily to do incorrectly and painfully. And so we believe in training healthy correction. The difference between healthy correction and toxic correction, healthy correction it's primarily a reminder, pulling off your group identity. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you and I are working for the same group and we're having a kind of a, a discussion of strategy and I disagree with someone and I kind of disrespect them, like kind of like roll my eyes that that's a stupid idea or something. You've just seen some of my character there. And that character doesn't look a lot like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. My question to you is, are you going to leave me stuck or are you going to remind me who I am because I forgot? Mm-hmm. So healthy corrections very much in the form of, Michael, you know, I know who you are. And in that meeting, you didn't seem to have your best self together then. Very specifically, let me me remind you that we're a people who are always leading out with patience and kindness. And it seemed, and we're very slow to listen. I mean, we're quick to listen and slow to speak. And it seemed like you were the opposite. Mm. You were very quick to speak and very slow to listen. And so let me remind you who you are, because that didn't seem like uh, the Michael I know. 
So it, you're very much pulling me back into my group identity, reminding me who I am, but you're affirming our relationship. It's not, you don't come to my office and say, you yeah, and you screwed up. Don't ever do that again. And you slam my door mm-hmm. and walk away. That's toxic because it's non-relational and you left me stuck in my shame and I don't know any way yeah. out. Boy, that's okay. But in, so the good one is you're reminding me who I am. So you act, that's actually pulling me back out into, you're pulling me back into my mm-hmm. true self. And that's the wounds of a friend. And I, I feel yep. like so often we get that fourth one before the other three. And it's like, I'm not right. going to show you joy. You're not part of our group until you clean up your act. And what you're saying right. is no, 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 no. Like you've got to build the relationship. You got to build the community and the sense of belonging. And now it's not only appropriate, it's necessary to confront each other when we get out of line. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And if we'd been practicing some group build, building, some group identity get together for the last six months, you have a library to pull off that my brain has not forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, we are a people who statements, mm-hmm. right? And we are people who treat people with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So when I don't do that, you can come and say, Michael, let me remind you, you know, the group identity, who we are. We're actually people who treat people with compassion, mm-hmm. no matter, even when we disagree, mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll all of a sudden realize, oh, yeah, she's right. I forgot who I was mm-hmm. there. You may just need to say that, nothing more, and I'll, I'll finish the correction on my own because I'll yeah. get it. By building group identity, you're setting up an ability to form each other's character through mm-hmm. correction. All this sounds like a lot of work, and it sounds like paradigm mm-hmm. shifts from the way we normally yep. do life and family and church. Is it possible? Like, Have you seen this stuff actually live out in communities and churches? Well, I've seen it in my own life. Personally, my wife and I have changed more in the last five years than we have in the previous mm-hmm. 20. You know, I just started the consulting branch of the of our nonprofit Life Model Works. I've only started that like two mm-hmm. years ago. So we're just, I've been worked with maybe 15 churches. So it's just getting started, just rolling out. And so we're kind of learning as we go, but there's some encouraging stories yeah. to tell. Well, thank you for everything that you've shared. It's uh, it's not only, again, a paradigm shift, but you're giving such practical things that we can do in our relationship with God and our relationship with other people to really grow. And uh, that's what I want. I know that's what many of those listening want as well. So thanks. Well, I really appreciate what Michael revealed about how God created us. You know, God has embedded within us the capacity to be literally transformed. But many of us only engage our faith through studying, listening, things like that, that just hit one side of our brain. And as you learn today, to continue to be transformed, God's design requires more than just books and sermons and podcasts. You really begin to change in great ways when you belong to what Michael called has said communities. Now, if you've been engaging with our ministry, Authentic and Missy, for a while, you know that community is hugely important to us because we know it's part of how you change. We're always looking for ways to create places where you can be honest and seen and known and develop an identity of change. If this is something that you're feeling challenged to do in this new year, I'd encourage you to take a look at our online book study groups. These groups are a great place to build community. Registration closes January 14th, so don't wait. Click the link in the show notes to explore some of the topics and books that we're offering. And just go ahead and sign up as a first step of saying, God, like I really, really want to see transformation and change in this new year. 
And if you'd like to hear more from Michael, I'd encourage you to get his book, which is linked in the show notes, or you can visit his website, Life Model Works, to learn more about the work that he does. And those links are in our show notes. Well, that's all I have for you today, friend. Hey, thanks for joining me. And I look forward to being with you next time on Java with Julie.